0: Okay, Luke 20, so this is the Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Holy week, Passion week, whatever you want to call it. Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, saying he's the king. It's a declaration of kingship, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9-9, where he's saying, I'm the king. On Monday, he cleanses the temple, I don't know if he looked that angry or not, but he turns over the tables... Drives out the money changers. That's a prophetic act. He's saying all of this stuff is about to be done away with. Everything that's going on in here, it's not going to be going on for very much longer. And it's also a priestly act. He's creating space for people to access God. Then Tuesday, he's teaching in the temple courts. And some people say it's a day of controversy. There's a lot of challenging between the religious leaders and Jesus. Y'all looked at a couple of those last week with David Scott, who... Basically, who do you think you are? Who's given you the authority to do these things, to ride in as a king and to upset these proceedings in the temple? Uh, they try to ensnare him in a political controversy. Who do, should we pay taxes or not? Today we're going to look at the final challenge to Jesus from another group of religious leaders. And then we're going to look at Jesus's. he turns the tables on them and he begins to challenge the religious leaders and say – We're going to see if you guys are actually fit to lead these people as well. So that's what we're going to look at today, starting in chapter 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her in the same way. The seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus has been challenged by Pharisees, who are a group of religious leaders, by chief priests, by elders, by scribes, and now the Sadducees, are kind of the last guys, uh, last group of religious leaders to challenge him. We haven't seen them before. They're a small group of aristocratic religious leaders, and they cater to the upper crust, the high levels of society. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they according they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they're coming to Jesus and they create this crazy hypothetical situation that's designed to say, see how silly you are believing in the resurrection. And so based on this Old Testament practice called leveret marriage, L E V I R A T E, which says, If if I'm married to Misty and I die before we have Tom, then Micah, my brother, marries Misty, and the first boy that they have is considered mine. Does that make sense? So if, if I die without having Tom, our oldest son, then, or any sons, then my brother Micah marries Misty, first son is considered mine. Why? To keep my name going and also to make sure the land that God has given to my family stays in my family. So it's, a, it's an issue of continuity. For the people of God. So that's a practice in Deuteronomy 25. It was taken very seriously. There were regulations. If, if a brother wouldn't step up. And fulfill his duty. There were some, the, some punishments. There it was a big deal. And so the Sadducees take that. And they run with it. And again they create this crazy scenario. Let's say that happens to seven brothers. And none of them have sons. Then who gets misty. When in the resurrection. And what Jesus says is. You're. Your premise is completely wrong. You're assuming that life in this age is just like life in the resurrection age. It's not. In the resurrection age, no one dies, and in the resurrection age, people don't get married. One of the reasons people get married, Genesis one twenty eight, fill the earth and or multiply fill the earth and multiply. Multiply and fill the earth. You don't have to do that anymore. One of the reasons people get married is for companionship. In the age to come we'll have the God plus brothers and sisters. Marriage it will end at death. The resurrection age, there is no marriage. So what he says to the Pharisees or the Sadducees is this scenario that you've created to try to prove that the resurrection is silly doesn't prove that at all because you don't understand anything about the resurrection age. And by the way, from one of the five books that you believe in, Exodus, when God is speaking to Moses, he says he introduces himself to Moses as I am, present tense, the God of Abraham who's dead. Isaac, who's dead, and Jacob, who's dead. I'm the present tense God of these past tense men. Dead men don't need gods. Therefore, they're still alive, Sadducees, from your own book. According to Matthew, it says, Matthew's version of this says they're done at that point. He shuts them down. They quit engaging with him in terms of challenging him. And then Jesus turns the tables on the religious leaders. Jesus says to them, to all these religious leaders, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So what Jesus says, he's going after their heads at this point. He'll go after their hearts in a minute. Right now he's going after their heads. Y'all's job, religious leaders, is to help These people understand the Bible. At that point, it's just the Old Testament. That's your job. A major part of that is helping them figure out exactly who God says the Messiah is going to be. Like preparing them for the Messiah, this one who God is going to send to make everything right. And so what Jesus does is he takes two Old Testament verses and he puts them together and he says, reconcile this. So the first one's from 2 Samuel 12. This is God talking to David. When your days, David, are over... And you rest with your father, so that's when you're dead. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, that immediately was true of Solomon. Solomon, David's son, built the temple. But what the Jewish leaders began to see is this is also Messianic because it's talking about a kingdom forever. And so the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, all these guys who are coming after Jesus, they all saw this as pointing to the Messiah. The Messiah would be a son or a descendant of David. And then Psalm 110, this is what David says. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the proper name for God, says to my Lord, that's a different word referring to the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what Jesus says is, figure that out for me. If the Messiah is a descendant of David, then why does David call him Lord? Fathers don't call their descendants Lord. A son may call his dad Lord, sir, or master is another way of understanding that verse of that word. A son may say that to a father. A father would never say that to a son. So you smart guys this is your job. You're supposed to be preparing these people for the Messiah. You're supposed to be helping them understand God and his ways. You're supposed to be helping them figure, navigate their way through the Old Testament. Put those two things together for me. Matthew says no one dared to reply even a single word. There's, they don't get it. Their job is to help people understand the Bible. They're not helping them understand the Bible. They're not fulfilling their calling at all. When I was reading that, the thing incidentally, if you want to know, the way you can reconcile those two things is the Messiah is not just David's son. He's more than David's son. He is a descendant of David, but he's more than a descendant of David. He's also the son of God, and so that's how he can be a descendant of David, and David can still recognize him as a superior. Jesus doesn't answer that, but that's a way that you would uh, reconcile those two things. So when I was thinking about that Reading these controversy stories, you can read about this in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. There's this Tuesday where it seems like Jesus is just getting hammered. People are coming at him from all sides, and they're all trying to lay a trap. They're all trying to discredit him. They're trying, There's these huge crowds because it's Passover week. He's just come in on this donkey, and everybody's going, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's turned over these tables in the temple, and according to Matthew, people are thrilled about that. And so they're trying to knock him down a few pegs. They're trying to get everybody kind of off the Jesus bandwagon. So they're laying these traps, and he is very uh, deathly maneuvering through them. And the thing that I see is he knows the truth. He doesn't just have Bible verses memorized. The truth is in him. If you look at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He's challenged there, his identity. Two of the three temptations are, if you are the Son of God, then. He's challenging Jesus' identity as a son. At the close of Jesus' ministry, we see him challenged in terms of his calling. And in both cases, at the outset and at the close, when it's his identity and when it's his calling, his response, both times, comes out of his knowledge of the word. Again, not just head knowledge, but it's, he recognizes what God is doing, and so he's able to navigate through these challenges. You're going to be challenged as well. Your identity as a son or a daughter will be challenged, and most likely it'll be challenged by the devil. That's what he does. Revelation 12:10, he's the accuser of the saints. So you have all these thoughts, and sometimes you don't know where they're coming from, that are negative, tearing you down. Did God really say, are you really a Christian? Is God actually going to take care of you? Those types of things, those are accusations from the devil. He's accusing God to you. Is God really that guy? He accuses you to God. God, that person, they're not worth anything. You can read Job. That's what he does. Well, The only reason Job is following you is because he's rich. So that he's accusing God to you. He accuses you to God. And then he accuses you about yourself as well. Makes accusations about yourself. You need to rec- And in those moments, knowing the truth, very, very important. It's your defense and your refuge. As you live out your calling, you will be challenged. Don't hear that negatively. People trying to knock you down. That may happen, but that's rare. I see it more as people who are hungry you are going, man, you've got to help me. God is all loving, and God is all good, and God is all powerful. And there's all of this suffering. You've got to help me put those things together because I can't. You say God desires all people to be saved, and we know that there's a billion out there who've never even heard the gospel. What happens to them? You've got to help me with that. You say God is just and compassionate, and I read in Joshua, and he said, wipe them out, men, women, and children. You've got to. I need help. And again, I don't think it's accusing. I think it's this desire for truth. God put turning in the hearts of everybody and there's this hunger in people for what's real and they're going to recognize it in you. And so they're going to ask you and they're going to say, you've got to help me with this. And I don't want you to say, call David. I don't. The Holy Spirit lives within you. He's the one that guides you into all truth. You have everything you need to be able to respond. It's not about whether you're a teacher or not. That's irrelevant. This is about, do you know him? Is his truth in your heart? Not just do you have verses memorized, that's great. But do you understand the depth of who he is and the breadth of what he's doing? If you can begin to get your hands around that, then you can navigate through all of those things. Because people will challenge you, again, not in a negative way. It's because they're hungry and they're looking for something real. And they're going to see it in you and they're going to ask you. And, you're going to, and you have everything that you need to respond in an appropriate way to them, if you understand what I mean by appropriate. But the only way I know to do that is to dive in, is to dig deep into the Word. So I'm going to give you just some very practical things that you can do before we look at the rest of this passage. Two things. There's lots of ways to approach the Bible. First thing I would say is expectantly, not some of us approach the Bible kind of begrudgingly, Some of us reluctantly, some not at all. Some, we approach this like it's a magic eight ball. It's this whole collection of fortune cookies. And I'm going to pull out, that's all, don't do any of that. What I want you to say is, this is God speaking. The Bible is revelation. Revelation is information you can't discover on your own. It has to be revealed. We can't get from us to God. He has to say, here's who I am. If we reason our way to God, you can go take Roman and Greek mythology and you can see what we get. We get Zeus and we get Mars and we get Aries. That's what we get. We get gods that look like us except a little bit stronger and a little bit more wicked to us. That's why it's called Revelation. The Bible is a revelation of who God is and what he's doing. That's just about all that's in there. This is who God is and here's his plan. Here's what he's doing. Just about everything in the Bible you can fit under one of those two headings. And so when you go to it, go expectantly. God, show me something about who you are. Show me something about who I am. Show me something about creation. Show me something about what you're doing. Show me something. Even pray before you read. God, show me something. We look at this and it's really long. We see a really long book with a lot of words. We don't realize the economy of this. All of the things that God could have said that he didn't. When John talks about Jesus, he said if if everything he did was written down, there's not a library big enough to hold those books. If you believe the Bible is inspired by God, then the reason even something like Leviticus is in there is because it's helpful. Because there's other things that aren't in there. And so my encouragement to you is to reckon that this is what God chose. He chose to put this stuff in here for our good. 2 Timothy 3 says it's all good to build you up and to train you. So grab onto that. Go expectantly. I didn't know a better word. I said theologically. There's probably a better word. It's going with the big picture in mind. Helps me a ton. You can drown in the details, get lost in the weeds. So I try to keep a couple of things in mind. One, the character of God. Holy love. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. God is love. So I put those two things together. If I've got two adjectives for God, it's holy and love. And so as I'm reading through, as I'm trying to talk to somebody about these difficult issues, I keep in mind this is who God is, and he's always consistent, 100%. So everything that I read and everything that we experience, I can run through the filter of his character. And I use his character. That's the ground for me. That's the plumb line. That's what's consistent with that. We're not that way. Even on our best days, we're not 100% consistent. He always is. And so if he is holy love, I can read Joshua and say somehow I can recon- we, we can reconcile, wipe out the village with holy love. It may take some work, but we can do it. We can reconcile why bad things happen to good people with holy love. It may take some time, but we can do it. We can reconcile people who've never heard the gospel with holy love because he always acts consistent with who he is. It can help provide a touchstone for you on some of these tricky spots. And the other thing I remember, you can read it and say, man, there's so many rules. There's 613 in the Old Testament, and there's more in the New Testament. You're like, I feel like all I'm doing is reading a rule book for life. There's just two. Love God and love people. Those are the only two rules you ever need to know. Love God and love people. Everything else that you read, you can stick under one of those two umbrellas. Worship, give, that helps me love, that puts some skin on what it means to love God. Forgive, bless, be compassionate, don't lie. All of that stuff falls under what it means to love people. Those are just, they're bullet points under these big topic headings. So you only have to memorize two, and it's only four words, love God and love people. And everything that you read that's a command, you can fit under one of those two headings, and you don't get lost and the details quite so quickly. So that's how I would encourage you to approach the Bible. And then I would say, practically, you've got to pick one that you can read. And it's hard because there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them at the store and online. So every Bible you buy, I'm just going to go real basic, is going to have two things on the front. One is an acronym, NIV. NLT, NAS, got all these letters. That's a translation. There's multiple translations of the Bible. The original languages are Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. None of us read that stuff. So we need it in English so we can understand it. And so they've got committees of people who translate these manuscripts from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek into English and into Spanish and into French and into German and into every other language that the Bible's been translated into. And there's two schools of thought. Some people do word for word. That's the New American Standard Bible. That's what NASB. If you're a word for word person, then you go buy that Bible. And what you're going to read, every, it's honestly difficult. It's wooden to read because they don't move anything around. What they say is, well, this is how it's written in Greek. And so I'm just going to take this word and turn it into English. If, if these Spanish speakers, if I said, put your nose to the grindstone, translate that into Spanish... They wouldn't just translate those words because it wouldn't communicate. They would say, oh, that means work hard, so they may translate something different. The NASB does not do that. And some people love it because they say, I don't want there to be any interpretation at all. I want just the words. So you may want that type of Bible. The other is thought for thought. So if I say, put your nose to the grindstone, they say, oh, that means work hard, so I'm going to translate work hard. It's thought for thought or idea for idea. Those are the most popular. NIV is what we read here. NLT is New Living Translation. It's great as well. If, I, if you were to ask me, if you said, I'll buy anything that you tell me to buy, I would say buy one of those two, an NIV or an NLT. The message is very popular. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. There's nothing wrong with it, but the guy who wrote it would say, it's not a translation. He did it by himself, and it's and it's a paraphrase. So it's it's even there's more interpretation in that than there is in the other. Then the next thing, go back, please. The next circle, study Bible. They're types, and this is where they make their money. So be careful. If Jesus came back today, he may go to Lifeway and turn over the tables. I don't know. He might. If you work at Lifeway. Sorry. <laughs> There's a billion types of Bible. Study. So that's that's for your head. There are all these. Here is where the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the mountain that it was on. Here's what a Sadducee is. It gives historical and archaeological background. And for some of us, it helps us understand. Some of you don't care. Then don't pay $69.99 for it. If you don't care about that stuff, don't buy it. It doesn't matter how thick your Bible is. It matters whether or not it helps you understand. If that's not your thing, you may want to get a life application, which is much more, it's exactly what it sounds like. Here's what I do with this. Here's some ideas on how I love my neighbor. Here's some thoughts on how I can pray for my enemies. It helps you put the truth into practice. Those are the two major types. Then there's a thousand others. There's a du- dynasty Bible There's waterproof Bibles. There's Bibles for moms with three kids under six. There's Bibles for (laughs) military people. There's Bibles for students and for children and for tweens and illustrated and full-life Bibles and spirit-filled Bibles and prophecy into the world Bibles. There's all of those things. Whatever helps you, you can probably tell how I feel about those. Whatever helps you, you get that. If it helps you with the truth, grab it. What I don't want you to do is to buy a Bible and spend all the time reading the devotionals and none of the time reading the Bible. Some of it's inspired. Some of it's good ideas. And you want to know the difference between the two. And so my you get whatever helps you. My encouragement, you think about what's going to help me understand this the best. And you buy that. And then there are other, there are these reference Bibles. If you're a you, you're a studier. It's got cross-references and links, and you can look up this word here and, and concordances, and all that stuff is good. You figure out what works for you. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to be embarrassed because you don't know where to start. I don't want you to be embarrassed because you've been a Christian for 10 years and you've never cracked a Bible, or because you don't. I don't. You talk to your small group leader, you come talk to me, and we'll, get, we'll help you get moving. I don't want you to be embarrassed about any of that. If you feel like I should be past that, by now, don't. If you're not a reader, then listen. You can listen. You can get CDs or you can download it. The Bible for hundreds of years was transmitted orally. It sounds great. Sometimes it sounds better than it reads. And that may be more your style. So don't get, let yourself off the hook and say, well, I just don't read. Well, then listen. And that will help you as well. Now, real quick, a couple of other things. Pick something helpful. Stay consistent. I think three to five days a week. I think seven, you're setting yourself up for failure. I'm a plow ahead guy. I don't get bogged down. I would encourage you as well. You're never going to understand all of it. And so if your choices are quit and get bogged down because you didn't understand something or keep moving, keep moving. I personally would not start at the beginning and start reading very many well-meaning souls have crashed on the rocks of Leviticus. Don't do it. (laughs) My preference, like if you said I'll start wherever you tell me, I would say start with Mark. It's action. Very little words, whole lot of action. Some people like John. I think he writes like a girl. But you may like that. And so those are the two places that I would start. Mark and John. If you read it, you'll see what I mean. It's pretty flowery. After that... Whichever one you start with, read the other one. If you start with John, then read Mark. If you start with Mark, read John. That will give you a good picture of Jesus' life and ministry. And then from there, you can go wherever you want. There's a thousand plans online. And you can find stuff. I can help you. You can get a Bible that tells you how to read it in a year. There's all kinds of different ways that you can go. But I would start in one of those two places. It will keep you, I think, from getting bogged down. And that's why I really emphasize I think Mark is the best because it has very little discourse, and lots of action, so it's easier to get through than some of the other Gospels. Process what you've been reading. Some of you are internal processors, so it doesn't do any good to read and then close the Bible and then go about your day. You haven't given yourself any time to chew on it, so give yourself some space. Some of you need to write internal processors. Some of you are verbal processors. That means you need to talk to somebody about it. There are these groups. They're called life transformation groups. Two or three people who covenant together to read certain sections of the Bible every week. And they talk about it. You may need to get in one of those. We can help you do that. You can see Bo. And he can, he's the guy who's over here playing the guitar. He can help you connect with some other guys. Connect with your spouse in your small group. It's a great place. If you're a verbal processor, there's got to be some place where you're talking this stuff out. And the last thing is obey it. It's not suggestions. It's from God. He expects you to do what he says. The best way to get the truth into you is to actually live it out. Then it becomes a part of you. You may not be able to quote the verse, but you'll know the truth. So I would encourage you to do that as well. The point of all of this is saying you're going to be challenged. Jesus' defense and refuge when he was challenged was the truth that was in his heart. And the same thing is and can be and should be true for us. That's your best defense. That's your best defense Refuge. Everywhere you go, your heart is with you. There's never a place where your heart is not. And if the truth is in there, then anytime you need it, you'll be able to draw on it, if that makes sense. Okay. So Jesus has gone after their heads. Now he, he goes after their hearts. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So Jesus has said, they're not helping you, like, they're not doing their job. They're not helping anybody in terms of understanding the Old Testament. And their heart, it's, it's all show. Don't trust them. You be You be on the lookout for those guys. And then he gives four examples. When they're in the streets, they wear these white robes so everybody will see them. And when they're in the market, everybody stands up and says, Rabbi and Father. And when they're in the synagogue, at church, they sit up in the front so everybody can see them. And when they're at a party, they take the most important seat so everybody will know how honored they are. It's all about them. They're not in it for you. They're in it for them. Even their prayers are a pretense. It's just a show. If I'm praying for Chad, the idea is saying God help Chad. But the way these guys pray, they pray really long, and they're praying really long. So Thatcher will think good of me when I pray. I really don't care if God helps Chad. What I care about is whether Thatcher thinks what well them. And the most vulnerable people in our society, widows, they are devouring their houses. They're taking their money, is what he's saying. Don't say how they're exploiting them. The most vulnerable, they're taking. These are not people who you can trust. And then he moves on. This seems like an odd placement for this story. Chapter 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So to me, so Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And it looks like, or it reads like, he almost just kind of looks up and then he sees this offering. There's 13 offering boxes and he just sees one. And according to Mark, the rich are throwing in large sums of money. They're putting in hundreds and thousands. And then this little old lady comes and she throws in two pennies that are worth 12 minutes of work. That's how small. This is nothing. Just a couple of pennies. And it's like, is this just a teachable moment about giving or is this tie in? I think it ties in. Jesus has just basically exposed the religious leaders as frauds. Their heads don't work, their hearts don't trust. And then I think he sees this lady, he sees these rich guys throwing money in, and I think he's going, all right, the way we judge, we look at these guys in their white robes. We call them rabbi, we call them father, they have the best seats in church, they, they've got the Old Testament memorized, they tithe, according to him, even their spices, mint and dill and cumin, and they're they're scrupulous in keeping the law. And we look at them and say, that's it. That's what God is looking for. We look at this temple, this magnificent building with all of this stuff going on, all of these sacrifices being made, these people who are helping folks make sacrifices by changing money and selling animals, and we say, that's it. That's what God wants. We see the rich, and we say, they're blessed by God. That's why they're wealthy. And look at the big checks that they're throwing in. That's what God is looking for. We look at the outsides. And I think God sees this widow. Jesus sees this widow and he goes, that's it, actually. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for somebody like that. Who doesn't give out of extra. Who gives out of faith. He's looking for somebody. He's looking for insides. Not outsides. Her gift is inconsequential. What can you do with two pennies? You can't even find a gumball machine for a penny anymore. You can't do anything. Put them on the railroad track. That's it. Her gift is nothing. And what does Jesus say about it? It's greater. It's more than. In what world, in what economy, in what accounting system is two pennies more than hundred? Who picks the picture on the left instead of the right? If I'm offering you money. Nobody. Win or two cents more than hundreds and thousands of dollars. Only in God's accounting system. Because he doesn't measure the amount of money. He measures the amount of faith. And what he sees is the lady expressing her faith by putting in all she's got. And he's contrasting that with these rich guys who are putting in extra. Doesn't affect them at all. We see this every time there's a humanitarian crisis. And someone who makes million a year gives a million dollars, and people swoon over it. And then you do the math and go, cheapskate. It's nothing. We can buy a lot with a million dollars, but that's you giving out of your excess. It's that one fewer private plane ride for you this year? It's nothing. It doesn't affect you at all. There's no expression of trust there. That's what he's looking for, and the widow gets it. Don't, th- yes, you can apply this to giving. I want to encourage you. I think it's bigger than that. I think he's, he's just deconstructed the religious leaders. And now he's lifting up this lady who everybody steps over, who nobody notices and saying, she's it. Let's pray. Lent, we give up things. I want you to go for things as well. Don't just give up. Go for. We're going for physical healing. We want to be persistent to continue to pray. I hope that you're going for one person in your life who's far from Jesus. And you're praying every day for that person. Just one minute. One minute at one o'clock. Jesus, reveal yourself to them. God, convict them of their sin. God, show them, him, her their need for a Savior, would you as gently as you can pull out everything that they're relying on that's keeping them from relying on you? God, would you speak to them in a way that they would understand? Would they hear you saying, come home? And I want you to go for more than that. Every place where you trust God is the place that you're giving him opportunity to work. If you've got it, if you're not trusting him, then his assumption is, well, you're running the show. You don't need me. And he pulls back until you crash the car and call for help, and he'll be there. But why wait until you do that? Why not make a choice to trust him now, to give him space to work in those areas. So I'm going to pray. and I want you to listen to the Lord. God, I pray for every man and woman, every student in this room. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would convict us in 30 seconds. Where's a place where you're asking us to trust you more? Just one. got five weeks of Lent left. It's a great time of experimentation, I hope, for you. If it makes you nervous, you can know that it, it ends on March 27th. This, you can pull back. You can grab the steering wheel again. Is God saying, trust me with your children in a way that you never have. Trust me with your money in a way that you never have. Trust me with your business in a way that you never have. Trust me with your spouse in a way that you never have. Trust me with your future in a way that you never have. What's he asking you? You can say it was easy for that widow. She had nothing. Two cents doesn't pay the church's bills, but it doesn't pay her bills either. She had nothing to lose. You're right. That's why it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. want to hear you. It's what we started with today. You're His. He forms you. He made you. You're His sheep and He doesn't lead you to the slaughter. Green pastures, quiet waters, paths of righteousness. If you'll give Him an inch, open the door. It'll it's a whole new world of things that he can do in your life. Every place where you choose to trust him is an invitation for him to work. The places where you're not trusting him, you're shutting him out. And you don't want to do that. So whatever God put in your heart, I just if you're willing, pray this prayer. God trust you with fill in the blank. It makes me nervous. But I'm going to acknowledge that you're the Lord. That you are God of that area. That you're trustworthy and good. That you have my best interest at heart. I recognize things may not always break the way I want them to. But I also recognize that your character is never changing. And that your love for me is unshakable. Show me the step anything concrete I need to do as an expression of trust what is it for me she threw two pennies in a bucket what do I need to do do I need to make a phone call do I need to rip up an offer letter do I need to turn in a resignation do I need to write a bigger check to hover a little less. Is there an apology I need to make? What does it look like to trust you? What are are the two pennies I'm throwing in the bucket? And I'm praying for the grace to say yes and to do that. It's a hard area for me. If it was easy for me to trust you, I already would have. So I need help to do that but I'm committed God my prayer for everybody students and adults that prayed that prayers over the next five weeks what they would experience is you giving back to them pressed down shaken together and running over God I pray in whatever that area is that you would do abundantly more than they ever asked or imagined God, I pray that whatever they were hoping to accomplish by controlling that area, as soon as they let go, you do so much more with it. It's fuller and it's deeper and it's richer. And it's full of more joy and a whole lot less anxiety. God, we want to be like that. We want to be what you're looking for. We get it. You don't look at the outside. You're looking at hearts. And when you look at ours, God, I pray that you see trust. Without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please you. And we want to please you, Lord. So I pray we'd be men and women who trust you. In Jesus' name.